questions about the reading assignment on the, the pontifical document on uh, sexuality that was not clear or needs to be kind of clarified? No? All right, let's get started. We're talking tonight about the issues of marriage and chastity. So we're talking about chastity first. Now, chastity should not be confused with modesty, decency, or propriety. Those are all things that are part of chastity, but not how we define chastity itself. Because the reality is modesty, propriety, decency is different in cultures and locations. What is modest and appropriate in the U.S. will get you arrested in Saudi Arabia. So it's not the same thing everywhere you go. However, chastity is an important virtue which is for everybody. Chastity finds in all times, in all places, for everyone. It is defined this way. It's a moral virtue. So it's a moral virtue and one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. So to live chastity properly then is directly connected to the capacity to have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, allowing us to live in a chaste way. It's defined as a power, virtue, and ability. Chastity is a power, virtue, and ability that moderates the desires for a sexual pleasure. Chastity is a power, a virtue, and ability that moderates the desires for a sexual pleasure according to certain principles of faith, according to certain principles of faith and reason, according to one's state in life. So chastity can be defined as a power, virtue, and ability that moderates the desires for sexual pleasure according to certain principles of faith and reason according to one's state in life. That is the definition of chastity. Look for it in the final exam. It is sure to appear there. There are different ways that chastity is lived out. All right? First way is what we call premarital chastity. Premarital chastity. This is the condition every human person is born into. All of us are born into the state of premarital chastity. Secondly, there is marital chastity. The chastity lived out in the context of married love. There is post-marital chastity when a spouse has died, living in that kind of chastity. And non-marital chastity, like me, celibate state. So premarital, marital, postmarital, and non-marital. All of these are types of chastity. Oftentimes, gents, people conflate chastity with celibacy. They are not the same thing. Celibacy is simply the absence of a genital sexual experience. Whereas chastity is appropriate to every single person. 
so important for us to get a handle on that. Chastity is there to constrain our passions, to help us to live virtuously, to live with the proper understanding, the nuptial meaning of the body that John Paul II spoke about so often. Chastity allows us to have a sense of self-mastery because all of us, by nature of our fallen human state, are born into this fallen nature with what is called concupiscence. Concupiscence, which is C-O-N-C-U-P-I-S-C-E-N-C-E. Concupiscence, The concupiscence is the disordered desire for pleasure across every spectrum. So on Labor Day, that last hot dog, I shouldn't have it, I don't need to have it, man, I really want that hot dog, but I shouldn't have it. I'm going for it though. That inclination to go against so we know is not good for us. And then to, to choose the, the, the wrong thing, that's concupiscence. And a more, that's kind of a rudimentary, very kind of innocuous example. But the reality is it affects everything across the board in our life as believers. Concupiscence is this kind of this struggle interiorly. You know, G.K. Chesterton said original sin is the one Christian doctrine we have empirical evidence that is true. Because the reality is all of us are, have this battle going on to try and live a life that is virtuous, that is holy, that is with our passions and our intellect synced up. And it's a real challenge because the reality is most of us, all of us really, have a battle with that. Even the saints have a battle with that. But concupiscence normally is spoken about in reference to sexual pleasure and the need to combat sexual sin. All right. Now, before the fall in the Garden of Eden, everything was balanced. Everything was lined up. So when Adam thought something, his will was perfectly aligned, making it happen. Eve, same thing. But sin disorders that. Genesis tells us in beautiful, poetic language that Adam and Eve walked with God in the cool of the evening twilight. Beautiful metaphor for the relationship they had with the Lord. His unity, this oneness with him. And all ruptured through sin. So the example we have, of course, as Genesis gives us, is the example of Eve who sees the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So one thing, God tells them one thing. Of all these trees, of a full orchard here, one tree, don't eat from that tree. It's a very simple commandment. They can't do it. And Eve looks at the tree. And what does Eve see? She sees that the tree is good fruit, it's going to taste good, and it's going to make me wise. Because remember, Satan says to Eve, the minute you eat of it, you will become like God, knowing good from evil. He's not totally wrong there. You see, Satan always couches the lies. You know, when he says to Eve, 
Because her first concern is, God told us if we eat, we're going to die. And Satan says to her, you won't die. God is worried that you'll become like him if you eat of this tree. Now, Satan is not wrong in that they don't die that, that moment. What they do die, though, is a spiritual death. And even in the Hebrew, the word for death is different than the than normal natural death. Because the death they die is a spiritual death. But again, it's the three things. It looks good, it's going to taste good, and make me wise. This is a threefold concupiscence. In 1 John 2.16, he speaks of this as lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. These are the three things that are the temptations, and all temptations, in some way, shape, or form, spring from this. Now, the first one, or all three of them, rather, all three of them, Jesus faces in his temptations in the wilderness. Jesus is hungry. He spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting, eating very little. Satan comes to him. We all know how it goes, right? Satan comes to him. If you are the Son of God, turn the stones into bread. First temptation, the lust of the flesh. He's hungry. He wants to eat. Satan tempts him with his flesh, his hunger. But of course, although responds, the man is not by bread alone. Secondly, we have the temptation of Satan showing our Lord all of the world's kingdoms. Satan says to Jesus, but kneel before me, and it will all belong to you. Lust of the eyes. He shows the Lord what he'll have, power, human might, human strength, over all the world's kingdoms. Lust of the eyes. Jesus responds, the Lord your God alone will you serve. Last temptation, temptation of throwing himself off the parapet of the temple, and God will catch you. That is an indication of a lust, the desire to make one wise. They will see how great he is, how powerful he is, the pride of life is there. But of course, Jesus says to Satan, look at the temple Lord your God. What's fascinating about this, by the way, a little bit of a sidebar here, in Luke's account, everyone, all the all Gospels, every time Jesus is tempted, he responds with a scriptural answer. The last time in Luke's Gospel, Lord, it is written, he will send his angels to bear you up, lest you take your foot against the stone. So Satan himself there quotes scripture. It's not enough to know a scripture. You have to be able to apply it to the totality of scripture to be able to answer it when, we, when we're tempted. All right, any questions before we move on? Also present here is the, the enemy challenges Christ's identity. Each temptation begins with, if you are the Son of God, then do this. The devil loves to challenge our identity. Now, many of us, our identity is wrapped up in what we do. And think about this. Now, if you're at a party somewhere, after a stranger asks for your name, Almost reflexively, the next question they ask is, so what do you do? 
that what you do defines you. And we begin to think to ourselves, yeah, my success, my job, my promotions, my 401k, how they have the car I drive, all that defines me. And we live in a world where I'm defined by what I do and what I have. And the problem with that is it's backwards. What defines us is not what we do. What defines us is our identity as sons, in our case, sons, we'll hear, sons of beloved sons of the Father. That is what defines us. The same thing spoken to Jesus at his baptism has been spoken to us as well. As the water was poured over our head, God the Father, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. As men who will one day soon please God, baptize babies and other people as well. It is critical for us to realize that we are sharing and allowing new people to join the family of God, adopted children of God. Baptism is not some rudimentary, cutesy, water on a head type of a deal. It is very serious business. It really is, in a person's soul, a kind of regime change. We go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from death to life, pagan to Christian. People will say, I was born Catholic. No one is born Catholic. We're all born pagan, every single one of us. But through baptism, we become Catholic. We're adopted by the Father. So it's really important that we have a sense of understanding who we are in Christ. Beloved sons, first and foremost. If we get that, a lot of other things will fall into place. Right? We also battle against concupiscence by living the four cardinal virtues. So, I'm going to ask you tonight. There are four of them. Who can give me the first cardinal virtue? Oh, oh, here, I hear, a, I hear a voice there. Hope is a theological virtue. There are four cardinal virtues. Hearing something in the background somewhere. Somebody speaking or is somebody talking in the background here? I can't really hear what's going on. All right, one of them is prudence. Okay, now, in the Catechism, this is a very important book. Everybody should have this book. The Catechism on page 503 gives us definitions of each of the four cardinal virtues. The first cardinal virtue is the virtue of prudence. Catechism, in brief, describes prudence this way. It disposes the practical reason to discern in every circumstance our true good to choose the right means for achieving it. Again, it's in the Catechism, just you know, get it online or if you have a copy of it, you can read it yourself. So prudence essentially means I'm able to discern what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. 
But as we saw last week, two weeks ago, I guess now, it is not always easy for us to understand or to see what is truly right or truly wrong. So I must rely upon other people sometimes to help guide me in that way. Because the reality is in our world today, as corrupt and crazy as it is, it is hard for us to get a real good sense of right and wrong in its kind of technical, um, applicable forms. So important was to ask people we trust if we're not sure about certain situations. Prudence is the first of the virtues. If I know what is right and know what is wrong, that is the guiding principle that I need to act and live properly. It's really important. So prudence is the first, first cardinal virtue. The second cardinal virtue is the cardinal virtue of justice. Justice simply consists in the firm and constant will to give God and neighbor their due. The firm and constant will to give God and neighbor their due. Belongs to you, therefore you should have it. Simply that is what justice is. Very simple, not complicated, prudence and justice. Next, we have the virtue of fortitude. Now, fortitude is defined by the catechism as firmness and difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of good. Firmness and difficulties and constancy in the pursuit of the good. Fortitude is sometimes defined as courage. It's a real wishy-washy kind of thing. Fortitude is much, much greater than courage. Fortitude is what allowed the martyrs to go singing to their deaths in the Roman Colosseum. It allowed Maximilian Colby to stand up in Auschwitz and offer his life for a stranger, for a prisoner. Fortitude really is the strength of the martyrs. And gents, today's day and age, whether we're going to be martyred in the public arena or our own personal lives, fortitude is a really important virtue for all of us to cultivate through prayer. It is also one of the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. So this not only is it, is it a virtue, it's a gift of the Holy Spirit as well. fourth cardinal virtue is temperance. Temperance moderates the attraction of the pleasure of the senses. Temperance moderates the attraction of the pleasures of the senses and provides balance in the use of created goods. Temperance moderates the attraction of the pleasures of the senses and provides balance in the use of created goods. So clearly under these cardinal virtues, chastity most formally would fall under the issue of temperance. Because that is the one, vir the one virtue which I'm trying to moderate my use of things. Temperance also is a good balance. Thomas Aquinas says in the middle is a virtue, in media virtue. What he means by that is there usually is extremes on both ends. The middle usually is where virtue can be found. Not an extreme, but in a center position here, in media virtue. So with chastity, it's not just about denying sexuality or repressing sexuality. That's what people think. People think that it's 
simply, I have to, I have to deny that I am a sexual being, that I have desires and wants, blah, blah, blah. No. We have to recognize it's part of who we are and how I use those pleasures, how I use those inclinations is the important thing. And I'm able to live that out with temperance as my guiding principle with all of that. Now, chastity is a long and exacting work. Self-mastery is a long and exacting work. And never, we never stop growing in the virtues. We never stop growing in greater holiness. And because fortitude is a gift of the Holy Spirit, and we need these gifts to be able to live our Christian life appropriately and devoutly, it's good for us to review now the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit. And again, gentlemen, when you're doing baptismal preparation in the parishes, you're doing it already. It's good to go over in a rudimentary way what the gifts of the Holy Spirit are. Because in baptism, we receive these gifts. And confirmation, the fullness of them is received. But it starts in baptism. And again, as men who will be administering the sacrament of baptism, really important so we have a sense of what these gifts of the Holy Spirit are. First gift of the Holy Spirit is wisdom. Okay? Wisdom allows us to choose what is right and cherish the things of God. Wisdom allows us to choose what is right and cherish the things of God. I'm truly wise. I know what matters in life. I'm truly wise. I know what has value. I know what truly is important. Wisdom. Second is understanding. Understanding enables us to more clearly perceive the truths of faith. Understanding allows us to more fully perceive the truths of the faith. The third gift of the Holy Spirit is counsel. Counsel allows us to choose what is right and what is wrong in a given situation. Counsel allows us, gives us the knowledge to choose what is right and wrong in a given situation. The third, the fourth gift of the Holy Spirit is knowledge. Now, knowledge allows me to know One second here. I'm looking for the actual definition. I don't want to bring Walter. Knowledge allows us to determine God's purpose in our life and act accordingly. Knowledge allows us to determine God's purpose in our life and act accordingly. So when I work with men, think about the priesthood. Knowledge becomes essential. The man is discerning. God's purpose in his life. And he wants to be able to act in the appropriate way without that purpose in his life. Fifth gift, fortitude, which is supernatural courage to defend and live our faith. Fortitude is supernatural courage to defend and live our faith. The sixth 
gift of the Holy Spirit is piety. Piety is the desire to worship God and give him honor and praise. Piety is the desire to worship God and give him honor and praise. And lastly, fear of the Lord, which is more commonly referred to now as awe and wonder. Either way is, 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 is fine to put it. And fear of the Lord is our desire not to offend God, a desire not to offend God, not out of obligation, but out of love. A desire not to offend God, not out of obligation, but out of love. And those seven gifts are essential in allowing us to live out this vocation of chastity and to live it out appropriately as we go through our state in life. Now, chastity also has the issue of what's called the law of... Yeah, yeah. Your question? Chastity allows us also what's called the law of gradualism. The law of gradualism simply means that as I am working toward this goal, I'm not there yet, but I'm seeing improvement as I'm growing in this virtue. The law of gradualism allows us to grow in the virtue we're trying to acquire. The long and exact work in the catechism is very clear that it ain't easy, but it is essential for us to live this way as men of faith, as disciples uh, of the Lord. Okay. St. Augustine said once, master yourself and the world is at your feet. Master yourself and the world is at your feet. And once you have a, a sense and the ability of self-mastery, you're able then to control your desires, control your passions, and do what is right. See, many people today view freedom as the ability to do anything I want. The reality is that's license, not freedom. Freedom is to know the good and be able to choose it. That is what freedom looks like, to know the good and be able to choose it. Because sin makes us slaves, doesn't make us free. No addict thinks he is free, because he's not free. Sin only makes us become slaves to our sinfulness, slaves to our passions, does not give us the freedom we're looking for. Jesus says the truth will set you free, and it will. How many people today live a sense of lies? How many people today live in this kind of self-imposed darkness and prison? But Jesus, in his teachings, in his truth, that is what sets us free. Now, when it comes to chastity, it is fundamentally important that couples preparing for marriage are chaste really important and also not the norm right now by any stretch when you have marriage prep you can assume of a couple 
two things. This is negative. It's not cynical, but think of my experience. Two things you can assume. First thing, they're not going to church. Okay. Probably at some point in college, they might go to mass. You know, that's what usually how it goes. The first thing you can assume, not going to church. Second assumption, living together. Almost like 90% of couples today, some wild number, are living together before marriage. It's a really serious problem. And it's serious because what happens in those cases a lot of times is rather than a definitive choice to get married, it becomes a sliding into marriage. After two or three years of living as husband and wife, essentially already, let's get married. Rather than a definitive choice, that I'm going to get married. People say, well, like, a, like buying a new car, right? You try it out first, test drive it first, then you know if you're gonna buy it or not. People are not cars. People have souls, they're people, not objects. To try someone out sounds terrible. But the problem is, so many people today have seen parents break up, siblings get divorced, they're terrified. So we see the number of marriages drop off significantly because the concern is, well, at least I won't get divorced. Now, some people say, well, isn't it only a piece of paper that says, hey, you're married, legally is there? Well, no, because marriage is at the service of the community. Whether you like it or not, that's the reality. When children are born, they have to go to school, go to the doctor, get an education. So couples that live together have to, you know, there's certain tax breaks or certain obligations or hospital visitations. Your marriage affects everything about your life, at least it should. So to say piece of paper, it's all that it is, is to seriously diminish what marriage should look like, what marriage should be. In our culture today, it's a serious problem living that way. Now, the other thing about all this, there are a lot of genuinely good Catholic couples preparing for marriage who have the view that before marriage, nothing goes. After marriage, everything goes. And that is not the case either. You know, the, the chastity that is before marriage is total and complete. But after marriage doesn't mean now everything goes, now you're fine, right? That's not how it works. Because the reality is if we're not chased before we're married, we're not gonna be chased when we're married. A flip, a switch isn't flipped at on, mar- on wedding day, okay? We tell the seminarians that as a seminarian, so the priest. Meaning, an ordination day, Mr. Padikas also, an ordination day, you don't, your soul changes, your personality, sadly, does not. So, if you have not been working for the virtue of chastity before your wedding day, you're not going to be able, all of a sudden, to live that way because you, all, you know, you all of a sudden had this marriage happen now. Everything is different. That's not how it works. Virtue is built up. It's a habit we have to acquire. Now, 
One of the challenges today as well, gents, is the number of mixed marriages you're going to come across. Catholics marrying non-Catholics, Protestants, you know, non-baptized people. So let me ask you a question. And if anybody kind of, you know, throw it out there. If a couple came to you in marriage prep, wanted to get married in your church, and you had them, the couple come and visit you, and he was Catholic, not going to Mass, and she was baptized as a Baptist, Presbyterian, you know, a Protestant denomination. What advice would you give them? How would you help that couple as they prepare for marriage? He's Catholic, she's not. You married in the church, what would you do? To, how, would you, how would you approach that situation? How would you, how would you help that couple to prepare well for marriage? The point is, you know, anything that comes to mind. Well, I, I would ask the question, why is it important to get married in the church? If, 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 one, if one's marrying a non-Catholic, right? and now they want to get married in the church, mm -hmm. my first question would be, why? I mean, is it, if it's not important to marry someone who's Catholic, why is it important to get married in the church? Right. Okay. So your first kind of point there would be kind of like, in a certain sense, as a challenge question, Peter, or as like, you know, you want to know your own, your own sense of things. Like, what's, what's the point here of this? It's both. It's both. It's like, I want to see how that person's thinking and let them think and answer their own question. I mean, if you want to get married in the church, obviously with God, blessings and so forth, but yet you're going to marry someone who doesn't believe in what you believe in and supposedly raise children. I mean, that's going to be an issue. So I need to make them think of what they're doing and question their faith. And if it brings up the conversation about whether, you know, converting the other person to follow that faith, that's obviously the ultimate goal. But I think before they get married, that's something they have to learn and right. come to agreement on how they're going to raise their family and lifestyle. Right. Good. So your point is a good one, Peter, which is asking them, hey, what's the, what's the reason for getting married in the church? What's, what's your motivation here for doing this? If I can find out from them what's going on here. And usually, usually, the answer will be something along the lines of, well, we want to have God involved in our marriage. Kind of the, the stock answer you're going to get from them. So... And that was the answer you're going to get. You have to kind of try to go with that when talking with the couple and trying to figure out what their situation is. Good. What other questions might you ask or, or comments you might make the couple to prepare and to work with them toward marriage and church? Isn't the um, non-Catholic person still promising to welcome children and raise them Catholic? Absolutely. So shouldn't they know that? That's the nation they should be nation Definitely. And you can you, you pose it as like, so you realize that by doing this, you're going to promise to raise the children Catholic. And most times, this is the case in most of these situations, the non-Catholic party is not that into their own faith. They have no objection to raising the children Catholic. But the other problem here 
is the Catholic party really hasn't gone to mass since they've been in college. Maybe it's been, you know, four or five years now they've been out of college. There really is no faith life on their part. So with that going on also, the, the challenge or the difficulty becomes, what assurances do I have? This is going to happen. You know, so good points. The point about why you came out of church and the point about children being raised in the faith. What other question would you want to ask a couple that's, you know, mixed marriage coming into the, your office for um, marriage prep? What else might be a, a question to ask them? But wouldn't we want to invite them both to Mass? Yes, Doug, absolutely. Excellent, excellent point. Absolutely. Because that's going to be a matter of them feeling welcomed in church. Them feeling they're part of the community here. Because the reality is, they what they're expecting is to be criticized, to be judged, to be put down, because they're not living as the church wants them to live right now. They're expecting to be criticized. We're giving them the opposite of what they expect and welcoming them, as Doug mentioned, like you know, the whole mass invitation. Very, very important. Excellent point. Anybody else want to give an answer or give a thought about that? What you might tell a couple? Now, I would think that they would have to be obviously welcome, but also um, basically they would both probably have to get some, some education, like RCIA classes for both of them, just to get a refresher for the for the man and for the woman to, to get up to speed. I think that's really important for them to know what what, what they're doing and you know where they're going to be going and, and, and that uh, faith. Great. Yeah, absolutely. The education part is a big, big part of that. They're probably going to balk at the idea of going to classes for you know several months before the wedding. Um, now, if he wants to if he wants to convert to Catholicism, that's different. But if if he just has no intention of converting, but here's the thing. I would advise with couples for marriage prep at least three separate meetings. First meeting is all rudimentary, just how'd you meet, when did you get engaged, uh, are your parents on board with all of this, are your siblings happy about it? You know, questions that are just getting to know the person. What you're trying to do is build up a sense of trust with the couple. What I would do them is look at the folder, their names, their telephone numbers, their faith, and then I'd ask about what's your address. And most times, same address. And I would not say a word about it at that point. Go to the whole meeting, all the pleasantries, they've known well, they've talked to them about their life and all their you know, education and their dating and their engagement and all that kind of good stuff and affirm them. Then I would say, by the way, I noticed the address here is the same. How long has this been going on? And then you find out, oh, it's been going on for six months or a year or whatever. Because if you go, if you start with the question about address, now they're on the defensive. Because mm. immediately their thought is going to be, okay, his only thought is living together. Okay, well, come on, you know. So don't even go there until the very end of the meeting. They know, look, they know what they're doing is not what the church wants them to do. In their mind, it may be fine. Probably it is for them. Not that it's right, but for them, their mind it is. But they know that the church does not think this is a good thing. And it's important let them know that, oh, by the way, as you know, this is important that the church, da 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 People will say, listen, 
Well, some priests will tell you that the encouragement should be given to live with brother and sister. It's not a bad advice to give. However, if this is a couple in their mid-20s sharing an apartment with one bedroom, let's be real. Okay? So, I mean, you try to encourage them, but what you want to avoid doing also, your fellas, is looking like, looking like, like, a, like a naive idiot. If you say to a young couple, mid-20s, live with brother and sister, they can walk out of the office thinking, yeah, okay, Deacon, sure. They may say to you, well, we'll give it a shot and lie to you about it, <laughs> maybe. And there are, but there are times, to be, to be honest, to be fair, where the couple will try. But I'd be, I'd be a little bit reluctant to advise that only because it really makes it seem like you're naive and kind of a fool to so ask a couple, mid-20s, young couple, live together. They're not, you know, need to be together as married couples should be. So one of the challenging things that could be out there. When it comes to the issue of raising children in the faith, that's a deal breaker, guys. If one of the people will not agree to do that, that's a deal breaker. It's got to be promised. Because the reality is you have to have assurance these kids are being raised in the teaching of the faith. If they're not going to be raised that way, that's a major problem. It really is. And it's going to be a problem later on in the course of the marriage. Plus, how serious is the Catholic party to get married in church if they have no real strong desire to pass that faith on to their children? It's a serious issue. And today, the majority of annulments that the church deals with have to do with the issue of having children and raising children. Those are the biggest issues of annulments in church today. We'll get to that next week, talk about operations in marriage. But a bit of a foreshadowing of this, that is one of the things that we see happening quite often right now with uh, children as a major issue. And of course, in the marriage right itself, they have to promise to accept children from God and raise them according to the law of Christ in this church. They promise that. I do. They promise to do this. The promises of consent that precede the vows are essential. We have to have a, have a good sense in that first, those meetings, they're serious. Now, the second meeting, to James's point, can help to educate them. My second meeting will be largely about the teaching of the church regarding marriage, regarding family. A lot of what we're covering tonight, I talk about with them in a much less time-consuming and hopefully not in Zoom. But um, in some way, that could at least give them some sense of the importance of, of marriage, the importance of the vocation that they are going to be entering into. Because most of them have no idea. That's the reality. Paul, raise your hand. Yes, Father, just a quick question yeah. for you. Uh, just going back one step. Mm -hmm. uh, when you use the word deal breaker, and I understand it's, it's part of the vows that are that are made at the time of the, of the marriage, but if you are questioning them and the, and the topic is raised and they give you a response such as, and I imagine maybe this is a, a fairly common response, I don't know, but if they give you a response such as, well, Father, 
we're not prepared to do that because we believe that they should make the decision on their own. You hear that everywhere nowadays. Oh, sure. I'm not baptizing my child. When they grow up, they'll make that decision. So if they say that and they're firm in that response to you, what do you do at that point? Next thing is, let's talk about this. Why do you say that? What's your, what is your reason for not wanting, you know, one of the things I say to them is, well, when it comes to children and their manners, you don't say to the kids, well, they'll choose to have good manners or not. Who's with themselves? No one says that. And the reality is, we know if, if, if they're going to say they'll choose for themselves, that means they're going to be raised with nothing. And I always say, raise them with something. My, um, my aunt was married many, many years ago. Her husband has passed away. Married a Jewish guy. And my grandfather, what a mercy on him, he's long since passed. My grandfather said to them, listen, raise the children with something. Do not raise them with nothing. Because if they're raised with nothing, they're going to believe nothing. And that is the reality. Children will not choose for themselves. It does not happen. So I would say to them, you know, this is really important. And But here's the thing. If they, if, if Paul, they can't promise to raise the kids in the faith, then they, the wedding can't happen. Because they're going to be promising things on the wedding day they can't do. One of the biggest fights you're going to have, and use that word, obviously, somewhat metaphorically, not really whether you fight, although it could be in today's age, but the biggest fight you can have is over sponsor forms and godparent forms. I've been out of the parish now for four, over four years, vocation director. I miss a lot of parish life. I miss the people, I miss the sacraments, you know, doing them consistently, I miss a lot of that. I do not miss sponsor forms or godparent forms. Because people, it's, it's, it's awful. I've had some of the nastiest things said to me because I could not give a person a sponsor form. Now, Father, why can't my atheist college roommate, who's a good person, be my kid's godfather? Well, um, yeah, because they don't believe in anything? That's kind of an issue? So what you try and do with them, <laughs> see, look, they can be involved in the kid's life. A good example for the kid, but they can't make the promise of baptism that we need that godparents to make. Sponsor forms, same thing, and they will lie to your face, unfortunately. That's the reality, fellas. You know, this is this is the bold-faced truth tonight about these things. It's difficult. You know, my first six or seven marriages I did as a priest were not actual marriage, they were convalidations, which they came by way uh, baptismal interviews and sponsor forms. Because the question is asked, were you married in church? And the answer usually goes, well, once you hear, well, you know, uh, here we go. here's the story, here we go. You know, and um, it's challenging. And even worse, some of them think they, they are married in church and they're not. For example, in New York, well, at least for, in New York at least, we do not allow weddings outside of a church, unless it's Catholic marrying and non-baptized, and it's different, but for the most part, if it's two Catholics or two baptized people, it must happen in a church, not in nature, not in the beach, not in the catering hall, in the church. So, there are priests who left the priesthood who are still civilly licensed to do marriages, and there is their website to these guys, and they'll go anywhere. They'll go to a beach, a backyard, and they'll come dressed like this, 
with investments and a marriage right book and do the whole thing and do every appearance they're married in church, except in the eyes of the church, in the eyes of the Lord. So couples don't know this sometimes. And I asked a couple once, they will, where are you married? Well, married on, in Mount Fuji Lodge. I said, really? Um, okay, tell you more about that. Married by a priest, so it was, it was a priest. I said, oh, uh, what's his name? Even the name of the guy. What parish is he part of? Well, he didn't say. Oh, okay. So that point, I was ordained the about the hand, two months. They called downtown to the chancery office. My senior maiders. I said, hey, my senior. I said, um, a couple came in, and they were married by father so-and-so. And he laughed. He goes, ah, you got a celebrity. Good for you. And what are you talking about? Well, this guy is known as Dias Sober. He is our main culprit of doing marriages for couples that think they're married in church, and they're not. And that becomes a real big issue. I had one case, a woman was getting a sponsor form, thought she was married in church. And she wasn't, and she flipped out my office. Like, not like upset at me, but at the situation, like freaked out. And I said, calm down, we'll figure it out, we'll work it out, take it easy, it's okay, we'll, we'll. and we did. But people don't know now. Real issue. So, yeah, I mean, these are a big challenges we're going to face today. But the issue of raising children in the faith is not a negotiable thing. It really is essential. Again, because it goes back to the fact of you have to be able to make promises at the, at the wedding. And you can't promise these things if you're not going to live that way. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. Peter. What happens if they say they don't plan on having children or they can't? Oh, have yeah. Well, that is. A big problem as well. It is one thing if a couple can't have children, which is, you know, that's, not, that's an unfortunate, you know, thing that happens. When they say, Father, we're not going to have children, let's talk about this, you know? And you try then the good of children, the good of family. You know, chances are, if their intention is not to have children, they won't tell you. They'll, they'll lie to you about it. Uh, just a reality, fellas. Sorry to say, they're gonna lie to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, we have kids. And I'll ask them sometimes, have you discussed having children? And if the answer is no, I'm like, well, you're getting married in like five months here, what's the deal? Like, kind of a big thing. The cake's picked out, you have the flowers picked out, raising kids, not talked about yet. Maybe yeah, like, yeah, like that conversation should be had to be higher a little bit, you know, I don't know. It really is essential because again, they're promising to have children. Now, a lot of things is this about about children. No one can tell them how many children to have. I can't, or Francis can't, no one can. In the end, the choice of how many kids to have is between them and the Lord and their conscience. So it's not a decision I or any other priest or religious or pope or bishop can make that decision. It is the couple and the couple decision alone. But if they come into your office and say, we're not going to have children, your next line is, let's talk about this. It may end up nowhere. Or they may realize, I wouldn't use the word deal breaker. I use that tonight in our conversation as, as a class. Because they're getting more prone to lie to you if they think it's a deal breaker. Let's talk about this and let's discuss what your reasons are for not wanting to have children. And from there, you're able to talk about what their issues are, what their concerns are. Chances are probably they themselves were products of divorce, 
either one or both of them. And of course, as we know, the divorce is hardest on the children. And they're probably terrified that what will happen if we have children and we end up divorced. Now, the other thing is this. In today's day and age, there are many couples that come to you when they already have children. So it's kind of a weird thing. Like, will we have more kids? What's, what's your plan here? So you already have one or two. You're going to have, you know, three or four. What's, what's kind of your your deal here? So it makes it even more complicated. They already have kids. But now it's a matter of, you know, what are you going to do? And I'll tell you, one of my um, most bizarro wedding interviews, a couple that were in my office getting married in church, she was, uh, it was not, you know, they had, they had one child, one young child, the guy. She's going to now nurse this child in the middle of our meeting. And, you know, that was a bit awkward for me. I don't mind that happening. It's not like the end of the world, I, you know, whatever, but like, now I'm like, like, what kind of are you doing? Not looking at her at all, man. You know, how do I do you here? You know, so you never know, fellas, what you're gonna come across. Being in, in a parish, it's wonderful, like Lord of the Flies sometimes. You know, it's like you don't know what you're gonna be dealing with every so often um, in the joy of parish ministry. But um, yeah, but these are all things that are good to talk about because they're all things that can come up in the course of the conversation. Um, really essential. Now, yeah, okay. Sure. Sure. At what point in the meetings and in the discussion, if one of them is Catholic, and that was the situation you gave us, correct? You At what point do you deal with the issue of the sacraments and reconciliation and receiving? Right. Excellent. Excellent point. I'm just getting that right now, actually. So the point made before about um, inviting them to return to church going back to, to Mass again. Very important. But but it must be said that right now you're not living in a certain way that will allow you to approach communion. But we want you to come back. I want to see you there. Great to have you there. Affirm them in that. Again, encourage, encourage, encourage. Because they need that. And remember, they're coming to that meeting assuming you are probably an ogre. Because the reality is the culture depicts us that way. And perhaps we're priests and for deacons, I don't know. But the assumption most people have that I'm some like nasty repressed guy who's gonna like come down upon them for living a certain way. So I want to first remove that mindset for them. But it comes down to the issue of um, mass for sure. Now, with confession, if they're going to try and live as brother and sister, even make an attempt. Confession works. You can go to confession and then you can, you know, you know, try to be as much as you can go to, go to communion. However, to go to confession every Saturday, let's say, for argument's sake, with no intention of not stopping your activity is a major problem for granting absolution and of being absolved. Because part of confession is a firm purpose of amendment. So even if you're not sure if you be able to do this, you don't know, but you're going to try, that's one thing. But if you know there's no way this week you're not going to be with your fiancé, I mean, you know, 
and it doesn't work. So what I was with couples is this. Listen, right before the wedding, the wedding is like on a Saturday, like Thursday or Friday, go to confession. I'm like, one, make your hands to yourself. Right? And then this way, because here's me on this guy. It's funny, but the, the, the thing is this. If they're married in mortal sin, the sacrament happens, the grace of the sacrament is blocked. You cannot receive sacramental grace in a state of mortal sin. Now, the block is removed. When you go to confession, you're absolved. That is different. But if you are married, a sacrament in mortal sin, the grace of the baptism and in, in confession, the grace of the sacrament does not take place because you can't, you're putting, you're putting a blockage there. Very important. Now, are they married in church? Yes. Is it a good marriage? Hopefully. Is it a marriage that where grace is flowing right now? No. And the example is this. A house in a field with the sun is shining on it. If the shutters are all closed to that house, there is no light entering that house. But once the shutters are opened, the windows now light is flooding into the house. Same thing with a person's soul and grace. And let me tell you, you and I know this. You need grace to live that vocation. You know, people enter it now, all kinds of things. An example of this, I'm talking about. So, I had a couple, a couple of years ago, more than that now, they married for several years. But they asked me at one of the meetings to write their own vows. And I was like, all right, here's the deal. Let's compromise. You must say the church vows first. Because the church vows are specifically geared toward the words of having children, of consent, of, you know, um, death do we part, all that kind of good stuff. Then you can say your vows afterwards. No one knows the difference. Just do it. It'll flow naturally. Just do it. And they agree. Again, compromise. Important. So the way they come. I assumed these are their vows. I assumed they come with, you know, a nice laminated calligraphy, you know, beautiful handwritten kind of thing, framed on the house after the way it's over. No, literally, gents, it was ripped off loose leaf paper. Like scribbled on, stuffed in their pockets. All right. All right. Whatever. Fine. That's bad enough. The vows themselves? Oh, boy. So the church vows are there. They're finished. And then she starts. And she's serious, not a joke. She begins with, I promise you, years of hugs and cuddles. And and I'm standing and I'm trapped. And I'm trapped. And I'm like, oh, Lord have mercy. And then he starts. I promise to annoy you every day, getting your nerves. And I'm like, what? what is happening right now? What is going on here? So you can't let on. You can't show that you're like, what is happening in this wedding? So you have to kind of smile through it, act like, you know, this is you no know, nice thing because it's making you crazy. Um, so the wedding is finished. Now, I put the vows on the table with sacristy because they didn't care about them after the wedding was over. And pastor walks in. The pastor was, was a, is, is a kind of lawyer. So he walks in, looks on the table and says, what is this? 
I said, all my senior year, I said, those are the vows a couple exchanged after their, their church vows. Really? Yeah. Here's what you're going to do. Go to the directory. Photocopy these vows. You're going to write on top of the sheet these vows the couple wrote and exchanged after the church vows. You fold it. You put it in an envelope. You seal it. You write on the envelope in case of annulment and drop it in their folder. Because if God forbid the marriage ends and you want an annulment and the tribunal sees that hugs and cuddles was your view of marriage, they're going to realize this was a marriage. They had no idea what they were doing. It's sad, but it's true. I mean, you have like your, your, your bridezillas. Those fun people, you know, Bryce Hillers are a way of evolution telling the man, get out now before it's too late. Like, run, let's run, don't look back. But most of them they don't. I had one where the guy was really, I mean, she had him on a leash already before they were even married. It was really bad. The guy called me every three or four days. She wants to know, Father, if blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, just tell her that it's fine. We're going to work it out. Don't worry. Blah, blah, blah. Fine. Now, two years living together before they got married. Wedding day comes. The parish was living at the time. The church did not have had a glass looking out onto the front of the church. So Lindsay pulls up. He's there with me in the front of the church, the best man, you know, the, the groomsman. And she won't get out of the car. So I go to limo. And I say, what the hell is going on right now? He says, oh, Father, this wedding has been just, for me, it's been brutal as well. I'm like, well, what is the deal? So we asked him again. We asked her, her father, what it means of honor. I forget what I, what I asked. But she refused to get out of the car because he'll see me before I walk down the aisle on the wedding day. Okay. Now, I didn't say this, thank God. But I'm thinking to myself, sweetheart, for two years, you had a house. He's seen you. Like, calm down. So, those are the moments that um, are, are challenging in our life and ministry as, uh, as priests. But you have to be compassionate about it. And the reality is, a lot of times at wedding rehearsals, if you offer confession, they'll go. People will go to confession. However, the couple should never go to the priest celebrating the sacrament. Bad idea. And here's why. Let's say the bride comes to me as a rehearsal and before the wedding in confession. His father, I don't love him. In fact, I have somebody else. I want to marry him. But I can't back out now. Everything's paid for, but I really don't love him. I'm trapped. I can't act on that. So next day, I have to do this wedding, thinking, acting as if everything is okay, knowing the wedding is invalid. But I can't do anything about it. So, yeah, bad idea. A priest should never get the confession of a couple he's going to marry because it will cause serious problems. Now, other points about some of these uh, practical stuff. This class is on pastoral issues. Yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, in case that does that 
happens to us, are we obligated to to stop the wedding as deacons? Well, for you as deacons, there's no there's no sealed yeah. confession. I mean, if they come to you and tell you that, you know, you have a well. I mean, yeah, I think so. Because if they come to you and tell you, hey, listen, I don't love this person, I don't want to marry them. Yeah, I mean, I think there has to be something said because, I mean, that's it's a real problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we cannot marry them then. Right. It's not the wedding. Yeah, because how can you provide a sacrament where there is no sacrament that's going to happen? That's the reality, you know? And, um, other? Yeah. Is, is it similar to that sealed envelope for the tribunal? If you suspect during the during the uh, um, the, the pre-wedding stuff, like especially in this particular case, I know that one of the parties was not did not want children. Right. And I mean, even joking around on the altar during the practicing, they're like, yeah, but yeah. But here's what should the should the priest or deacon at that point write in there that. You know, for the tribunal, that there is a strong suspicion that this was not a valid uh, because the, the person. My advice, that's a good question, John. Thank you for asking that. It's um, I have done that about three or four times, and I've done a hundred weddings in my priesthood. In the most extreme cases, I think mean, that's an extreme case, John. Frankly, you should do that. I did a wedding. Um, it was a couple where it was she was. In our CIA, and a major issue with her being confirmed, she was in a civil marriage with her her husband, and what had happened was she was not going to be able to receive confirmation at the vigil because she wasn't the marriage thing wasn't um, wasn't resolved. So he agreed after a long time of trying to you know talk to them and convince and convince he finally agreed to. Uh, Get married in church and actually the wedding was done right after the easter vigil we exchanged our vows in catholic form right after the vigil but after that i put a note in their file because i mean that kind of the case wondering they do this to keep, to keep her quiet make her happy or whatever but you know it's a real problem you have a case like that where you don't know how they're going to react or, or if they're going to persevere in this wedding. Then they had one where I had a couple, I was in, my, in the rectory before the, the wedding. And she comes in and says, Chris, uh, you know, your, your groomsmen are on the side of the church drinking right now. Are you kidding me? So I went to the side of the church and there they are. Cooler is there. The beers are, are open. They're knocking them back. I said, guys, guys. I said, after the mass, this is the mass that's not going to happen. After the mass, at the reception, not now. Oh, Father, we're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. Okay. Because alcohol was involved, and the groom was there, you have to note that this is a good couple, still married, I baptized their kids. They're great people, but the reality is because there was alcohol involved, which could compromise the vow was made by the groom. If you note it and drop it in the file, because that's just the nature of of, um, of these things. Any kind of compromising 
a mental type of a thing has to be noted because it does in fact play a role in the exchange of consent. Consent must be done with complete and total freedom or the consent does not take place. Now, also, by the way, this is very important. If you're doing a wedding at a parish that is not your own, you must, must, must get delegation from the parish you're going to be offering the wedding in. Okay? Call the rectory, talk to the pastor, have a smoke signal. I don't care what it is. You have to have somebody tell you you have delegation. If you don't, the wedding is invalid. All right? This goes back to the Middle Ages, actually, where we have this in, in, in uh, church law. So what happened in the Middle Ages is a couple in a village who might get married. The parents would object to it. So the parish church in the village won't marry them. They go to the forest. This is true. This is literally why they do this. They go to the forest, and Friar Tuck is there. And Friar Tuck, kind monk that he is, priest of the church, marries them. Now, they're married in the church, but their families don't know that. Nobody knows that. Friar Tuck knows it, and they know it. Nobody else does. So to avoid there being a serious problem of they're married here, and they're getting married again, you have to have delegation. The wedding is invalid. Very important that you do that. Additionally important, make sure you have the license at the rehearsal. Tell them at the third meeting, second meeting, whatever it is, have the license. You cannot marry them without a license. It's a legal binding document. It is dated. So you must be the one who has it in your possession at the rehearsal. I had a wedding a number of years ago. Thank God, a very small wedding. But the couple did not have the license. I couldn't marry them. It was awful. Thank God it was small enough where they were able to postpone the wedding a day to the very small kind of thing and marry them the next day instead. But it's a major issue. So all things that are, are the practicalities, gents, of, of parish life and of situations like this. Now, wedding rehearsals will try your patience like nothing else on this earth. They are not easy to deal with. Right? They're just not. People come there, and their one thought is, when are we getting to dinner? Get through this first. So what I would do, this is like a personal thing. I wouldn't, you know, it's not, everybody's my own, my own style here. My thought at the rehearsal was get everybody there, get the bridal party lined up, get them in place, practice the procession, practice all of the seating arrangements, I would blow through the ceremony in about like five minutes because they're going to forget everything anyway. So why waste my time with this? And I would promise them, I'm going to prompt tomorrow everything. Please stand, please sit, please kneel, vows, rings, all that stuff. There would be no surprises tomorrow. Get the recessional, get them out because they are not there other than to have to deal with this and kind of endure it and get the dinner. Don't put yourself in the, in the auditor, frankly, of trying to 
get them to get into this when they're not there to get into this. They have no desire to be there. So try to get them. And it's always that one relative who is late to everything, who holds up the rehearsal. Uncle John knows it's 5.30. Now it's 10, 10, 10 minutes to 6. Now I know he's not here yet on his way. He got lost on the road. He got to the church. He'll be here soon. You're like, I have things to do tonight. Come on, let's go. So tell them at the, in the meetings, if you have that relative of yours who is late to everything, always tell them an earlier time for the rehearsal. I'll be there if they're early, but get them there because I get things to do. Right? So now at the same time, I'm being, I'm being a bit you know, dramatic tonight. But at the same time, rehearsals are great opportunities for evangelization because you have the non-church there. You're there and you're there. It is a great time to show the church in her best way. Crack some jokes, be light about it, be kind, be patient. Put the church's best face on in moments like that. Because again, the impression people have is the mean, nasty, bitter Catholic church wants to put us down, make us feel terrible about ourselves. If you show that you're kind and compassionate, it helps. It helps a lot to soothe over some of that stuff. And it's a great tool, frankly, for evangelization. All right? Maybe. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Father, um, I think it's in this book, Pope Francis, The Name of God is Mercy. I believe it's in this book I read it where a young couple had come to him. I think this was back when he was a bishop and she was pregnant. They wanted to get married. And he turned to them and he said something like, I want you to go and have the child first, then focus on your love for one another. And then decide if marriage is what you still want. And I think a year or two later, they did exactly as he said, came back and he married them. And I just thought that was a great story, you know, to go and focus on, you know, marriage is a sacrament. Focus on focus on the child right now. Have the baby. Then focus on your love for one another. Um, and I just thought it was a great story. Is that what you typically would do? I mean, if something like that happens? It would depend on the couple, frankly. Um, if, they were, if they were very adamant about getting married, I'd want to respect that, that, that desire of theirs to get mm-hmm. married. But the concern, Stephen, is if you don't do it now, are you going to lose them? Because that's a concern. You know, a no now or a not yet now could lose them forever. I think that Pope Francis and his wisdom his point, and it's a good one, it's certainly a smart one, mm-hmm. is don't get married because you're having a child. Mm-hmm. That is not the reason to get married. Mm-hmm. I think Pope Francis was concerned that perhaps this couple might get married because they're having a child. It's mm-hmm. a bad idea. So that is wise. But meet the couple where they're at. When I said before about, you know, assuming they're married, living together, and going to church, I'm not thinking to be cynical. It's the reality, first of all. And you're meeting them where they are. Not where they should be, but where they are. Because if our thought process in all of this is I'm meeting them where they should be, we're dead. It's over. Because we're going to get upset. We're going to get depressed, frankly. Mm. And it's going to cause 
nothing good for you or for them in the, in the long run of things. So really important we have a sense of, of that. And again, you know, my, my typical approach to things, this is my own impression. Other priests have different approaches. So I'm not going to try and uh, give this as the, the old envelope of, of, uh, of ministry here. But my approach to it typically is you bend as much as you can. You compromise as much as you can. Because there are things you can't compromise on. If you compromise on the small stuff that can be compromised, on the big things, we need to know they're much more likely to agree to that if you haven't been belligerent from the start. Now, there are some priests who disagree. They say, no, they should follow the rules in the beginning, and that's not right, blah, blah, blah. Fine. That's your own impression. My take on it is meeting where they're at and compromise. Now, there are things you can compromise on. For example, when a couple asked me, a woman asked me, Father, with a ring bearing, could my dog have on your leash the rings and walk down the aisle? Um, no, I'm sorry, we can't have your dog putting the rings down at the wedding. Um, sorry, we can't do that. You know, I apologize. Not a dog. Sorry. You know, um, but when they asked, you know, could my, could my um, older niece, who was like seven, and my little nephew was like two, and he has the rings or the, the ring thing on, you know, the little pillow they have with the rings on them, whatever. And could she, in like a little, like cute little wheelbarrow thing that they have with decorated, wheel him in, you know, with a ring? Fine. Fine. Like, you know what? Yep, fine. Now, some might say, come on, Father, that's too much. Listen, listen. First of all, with the brides. Gentlemen, understand, this has been their date. They've been playing this since they were six years old, right? They've been playing their dress. They've been playing their, their, their reception. They've been playing their, their all this stuff because they were like six. Don't be the jerk who comes in and says, no, 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 no. That's never going to end well for you, okay? I tell, I tell the grooms, listen, guys, if you're a groom, you're a guest at her event. You're an important guest. No question about it. You're a guest. It's her day. Just, you know deal with it. So as a deacon, as a priest, if you can bend, bend. Now, if somebody's going to make you crazy, get it, I understand, but, like, if you can bend, bend. Now, that brings us to the wonderful issue of unity candles. Ah, unity candles. Everyone's favorite, like, eighth sacrament. So, unity candles, every couple today seems to request them. Now, of course, the unity is the rings, but whatever, it's not important, it's the rings, you know, whatever. So, everyone now wants to have a unity candle. Okay, wonderful. Allow it. Allow it. Fine. But, make it very clear. Please, please, get a set with the stand and the candles. Our parish, where I came from, had a, like, a general stand for, you know, for the candles to come. They didn't always fit. I had a wedding where I put the candles in. They were all there. The moms lit the two side candles, small candles. Turn around, go back to the altar to begin the rest of the wedding. And the candle falls, small candle falls. And shatters, lit on the sanctuary floor. But thank God it was marble and not carpet. But still... 
it was not a pleasant experience for them or for me. Also, these candles come hermetically wrapped, like you can't even like, like, like a PhD to get it out of there properly. Tell them, please open the candles yourself. Unwrap the candles yourself. Because again, it happened to me where I'm trying to cut the, the, the wrapping on one of the small side candles, and of course, I cut the candle. Thank God for scotch tape. <laughs> so at least at the wedding, they didn't see it. And they called me afterwards angry. You know, I survived that brush with death. But um, sometimes it becomes a real challenge when it comes to stuff like that. One of them, her sister was married the previous year, and her sister asked, could I use my sister's candle for my husband and I as well? Kind of weird, but all right. So I allowed it. Now the problem is this. In the large candle, the unity candle itself, the wick had melted into the wax. So when the time comes to light the unity candle, the symbol of our unity, the candle won't light. Yikes. So you can have it, it's fine, but as a rule, just make sure you have these very specific things. And I would say a couple, I'm not trying to be you know, weird here or anything, but here's why we have to do this, because if we don't do this, it's gonna be a real problem in terms of trying to get these, these wedding um, off on the right way here. So please be, be attentive to, um, to that. With the readings and readers, you're almost always gonna pick 1 Corinthians 13. Love is kind, love is patient, love is not jealous, all that stuff. Great reading, beautiful, you're gonna hear it at every single wedding, guaranteed. What I would do, a personal thing, pick the, pick the first read yourself, the gospel, I would pick. I'm gonna breathe, I'm gonna preach on it, and I'd always, I mean, my personal favorite is Cana, we didn't get to Cana, it's great, that was my choice. Now, some priests say give their, you know, pick out any reading you want, I would always pick out the gospel, uh, but that's my own personal preference, not anything you have to do yourself. Just um, a word of what I have done um, in the past myself. That's personal preference kind of thing. You know, all these little things, fellas, are things you won't think about at the time, but they're all very uh, practical issues that you're going to face without question when it comes to um, weddings and all this kind of fun stuff that is part of parish ministry. So. A lot there on practicalities. I've missed anything with my little, my little sheet here. I've missed any of the um, fun stuff. But, uh, Father? Yeah. Mm -hmm. You mentioned last week that uh, words mean everything. Mm -hmm. Did you hear the story, the true story, of the priest and the archbishop uh, in the Archdiocese of Detroit who learned that his baptism oh. was valid? Yep. And I'm not bringing it up just to talk about the story, because the real story is the courage that he took to bring that to the attention of the diocese, his pastor, and, and ultimately, I guess it went to Rome, to, yeah. to say, hey, listen, the deacon that baptized me said, we baptize you as opposed to I baptize you. The way he found out about it was his parents 
<clears throat> showed him the video. <clears throat> and this was after a document, apparently, we would know this far better than I, that came down uh, from, from apparently from Rome about the importance of the words and, and in, the, in the rites and in the, in the sacraments. And he, he had to report it. And, and part of the story was he had people in that were ordained saying, oh, don't worry about it. Just don't say anything about it. Well, and he said, no, I have to say, I have to bring this up. But it invalidated not only his baptism, it invalidated holy orders, it invalidated all his sacraments, and it invalidated every wedding that he had done. Yeah, yeah. Okay, a couple of things on that note. First, good point, George, thanks for bringing that up. First thing is this. Um, it was very common in a certain time of the church's history, not long ago, maybe about 40, 50 years ago, what the longest, um, when in the attempt at inclusive language, baptisms would be conducted in the name of the Creator, the Redeemer, and the Sanctifier, which is theologically horrendous. Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all created. God the Son, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, all redeemed. And all three sanctified. I know because in, in Second Theology, there's a question, and I got it wrong on a test. So I know that very well. All right? Because <laughs> the question was posed, um, God the Father created the universe. And I thought, yeah, true. No, false, because God... As a trinity, not only the Father created the universe. I was like, all right, so whatever. But the point is, the point is that also, that's not the way that Jesus himself reveals it. He says in Matthew's gospel, go therefore and baptize all nations in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a relational terminology that our blessed Lord uses when it comes to the sacraments. You don't mess this is true for the board you don't mess with the words ever do the red say the black period in the rubrics everything to do is done in red print to say it it's in black print simple follow it and the great thing about it gents i'll do a funeral mass let's say all i've done the church prayer is telling me to do Father, beautiful mass, beautiful funeral. I'm like, I didn't, I guess I had to worry. I read it. Thanks. Appreciate it. But the reality is the church's wisdom will lie on the church's wisdom. You know, for funerals, a little bit of an aside here, where I take a little story. But funerals, the church moves it along at a good clip. Wakes are short. The funeral mass itself, beautiful prayers, it moves. So I had a situation a number of years ago, first parish, where the deceased, the grandmother, had requested to have somewhere over the rainbow played at a funeral. All right. So you can't do this in the context of church. Not allowed. So how am I going to help this, this grieving family to do this, but not do it in the context of liturgy? So. The agreement was, we'll do it after the Mass is over, before getting into the, into the limousines to go to the cemetery, we'll do it then. Okay? Fine. Now, when the Mass ended, they were sad. They were upset. Clearly, of course, anybody who had a funeral Mass. By the time 
the song was over. They were a mess. You drag these things out. It's never good. The church in her wisdom moves it along for a reason. The longer it's dragged out, the harder it is for the grieving family to deal with it. So you know, meeting with a rat, be kind, do your thing. But the church's wisdom here has to guide us. The church has been with for 2,000 years, knows what it's doing, trusts the wisdom of the church you know, in these issues. It's going to give us the best help we need to be able to um, do this properly. Okay? So, a lot going on there, but you know, the reality of is that weddings, baptisms, wake services are all opportunities to work with the unchurched. Because they're not coming to us anymore. They're not going to church anymore. So when we get in there, we have to be sure to try and show them the best face the church has. It is critical for us, especially as clergy, that you will be in a couple of years to be able to give them a good, positive impression of the church. Okay? Good? Good. Go Father, is, yeah, sure. is, is every wedding um, wedding mass or... No, obviously. Good question, James. Thank you for, yeah, I kind of mentioned that. No. Um, the preference, frankly, unless they're a really church-going couple, is a ceremony. Now, they may ask for a mass, and that's fine, but they, um, they the preference, frankly, is a ceremony um, for the couple. I mean, if they're going to mass every Sunday, I had a wedding back in December where she was our cantor at the parish, he was, you know, a church-going, you know, great couple. They wanted a mass, you're getting a mass. Definitely a question about it. For a lot of couples, though, the mass is not part of their experience. They won't answer, but what they'll say, what they'll say is, Deacon, I want like half a mass. What they mean is, I want a ceremony. They don't know how to put it in the language, but that's what they mean. So, yeah, great, sure. I want a ceremony, you got it, absolutely. That's simple. That's the uh, introduction, the readings, the homily, the consent, the vows, our father, the blessing, and gone. So it's really, really simple. Now, George's point before about, about the, the priest who had been not baptized validly about those weddings, what happened in that case. Okay. So, the church has a thing called radical sanation. Radical sanation. S-A-N-A-T-I-O-N. Normally, Radical sanation is that a couple has been married, let's say, simply married for a number of years, whatever the case may be, and one of the parties is Catholic and really wants the marriage blessed by the church. But the other spouse is dead against it. They are really like, no, no, I hate the church, whatever, like, whatever issue they have, they want to do it. Normally, when a couple is married civilly and wants to get married in church, you have what's called a con validation. And the con validation, the con validation is when a couple comes already married civilly and they exchange their vows according to Catholic form. So con validation simply is your your, your own vows, Catholic form, done. However, 
the same prep work you would do for any other couple, you have to do with them. So Sacramento records, meetings, pre-cana, all that stuff still is a requirement. Not pre-cana, maybe not going to get married. But other things that are necessary, they have to do. But a radical sanation, like I said, normally is when one party is completely opposed to the wedding happening at all. Normally, you do in that case, the Catholic party comes in, they sign a form that simply says, there's no threat of divorce happening here. The kids are being raised Catholic. That's it. It's signed both the chancery, the bishop or a delegate, signs off on it, stamps it. The marriage is validated to the date of the vows originally exchanged years before. So retroactive to the first exchange of vows. All the weddings that Father did in Detroit were assinated, being they were all taken care of. The word assination is like a word for healing. They were all healed, all taken care of, retroactive to the vows being exchanged. That could happen also. Let's say you have a case where he's Catholic and she's not baptized, or vice versa, either way. When one of them is not baptized, you must get a form of disparity of worship. Parishes have them, you fill it out, not a big deal, always approved, it's simple. You must. If you don't, the wedding is invalid. So if you realize, I marry, you know, John and Mary here, John was, you know, raised as a, as a Muslim, not baptized, oh my gosh, you know, they got a form, I got a call on the plane going to Hawaii, Guys, yeah, come, come back to the church. Um, have a problem here? No. You call the chancery office. Say, yeah, um, if they have an issue here and it's taken care of, you don't know what happened. You just do it and taken care of is done. Please, please, don't ever let that happen. Because the embarrassment of calling and telling the chancery office that wouldn't be good for you or anybody else. So... Yeah, we're attentive to uh, some of that practical stuff that could happen in those cases. Right, but that's a good question George asked before about that, that uh, terrible deal with the guy who was um, not even baptized. Now it's awful. It's important because the word, words have meaning. And the, the word the church uses, there was a couple that wanted to have their own vows exchanged. I had to have the church vows first. Otherwise, the wording of their vows definitely not, uh, did not um, suffice proper consent to be given um, in the wedding. All right, moving right along. John Paul II said that pastors and priests make the significance of marriage and family of prime importance. JP2 was big on marriage and family and doing it properly. Again, he's Pope in the late 70s, early 80s, a lot of questions, a lot of confusion. Now hold a second, realize, as a priest and a bishop before he became Pope, of the challenges with marriages and the challenges couples were facing. So it's important for us to preach about the beauty of marriage, especially in today's day and age. I found it very interesting. In New York State, a number of years ago, 
when it legalized same-sex marriage before the rest of the country did, when it legalized same-sex marriage, it did so on the feast day, the birthday, John the Baptist, who lost his head over marriage, literally, right? The case of Herodias, who marries Herod Antipas, his brother-in-law, his sister-in-law, I guess, uh, whatever it was. The Herods were the Kardashians of the ancient world. They were a mess. And morally, on every facet, they were a disaster. Morally, they were a mess. So, John the Baptist was unfailing in preaching about the beauty of marriage, the sanctity of marriage, and so he was not afraid and lost his head because Thomas More, same thing. More lost his head over the defense of marriage. So, defending marriage isn't just a nice thing to do. Saints were martyred over marriage. It's a very serious business, and it is really important that we make it really evident that people need to respect marriage because it is a beautiful <coughs> sacrament that is so important for our society today. Okay? If you are able in your parishes to preach on weekdays or on Sundays especially, preach about it. If we talk about it, it means it's important. The parishes that have a lot of confessions mean the priests preach on confession. Our people trust us. Amazingly, still, they trust us. And they trust us to tell them the truth. And if we tell them over and over again, this is important, this is important, do this, do this, they're going to do it. By osmosis, they realize if Father, if Deacon talks about it a lot, it must be important. On the same token, if we don't talk about it, the opposite thing goes through. It must not be important. You know, churches were built now, it's kind of a terrible, tragic thing. These churches are built with like one confessional. That's horrendous. That communicates that confession isn't an important sacrament. It's there because we kind of have to have it. So, you know, it's a room over there, but really, it's not that important. It's awful. If we preach about it, people will know it's important. If we preach on marriage, they will know it's important. And to do so with tact, to do so with charity. Because most of our people don't agree with us on these issues. They think we're wrong, that we're backward, that we are you know, going to be on the wrong side of history, whatever you may want to put it. It's very important for us to approach these issues with great tact. So, for example, preaching today, I was at a conference. It wasn't with people that are actually, you know, like, you know, having to do this. <laughs> I was at a convent today, and I was talking about Term of the Cross. I say, oh, sisters, you know, love wins, that's the cross. Love wins is the cross. Because Jesus on the cross shows us there's obedience and sacrifice that love wins. At the parish, a couple of years ago, I said that, no bad reaction, no, no letters of hate or contempt or whatever. But I didn't have to say, gay marriage is a sin, it's wrong, it's terrible. Like, stop, no, no, no. Simply, tactfully, discreetly almost. Now, some cultures are different. Some cultures may have to have to really drive it home. But I was a priest in upstate New York, and largely 
you know, affluent suburbs, you got to be careful. People know it. They get it. They understand it. They're not stupid. And especially, gents, preaching on issues of sexuality to little ears in the congregation. Be very careful in how you say things. So, for example, I was preaching about pornography, let's say, for just for our, as, a, as a passing thing. I would say, you know, some of us may go to certain parts of the internet. We know we shouldn't go. Every adult knows what I mean. Every little kid is not even comprehending what I'm talking about. That's fine. That's okay. You know, tact in preaching is important. All right? People, it's funny because, you know, for Catholics, our preaching has always been kind of terrible. with under the ages kind of and unfortunate. But our people are nourished by our preaching. And they want to be, going to be preached to properly with prepared texts, with, you know, people at a given time to know what they're talking about on Sunday morning. So if you're in a parish where you're going to be preaching, it's really important that we do it well and comment on the important things often. All right. Back to Paul II. About 30, uh, 40 years ago, in 1981, he had a synod of bishops in Rome on the issue of marriage and family. And John Paul II published a document after the synod entitled Familiaris Consortio, and Familiaris Consortio um, outlined the beauty and importance of marriage. JP2 gave us four main elements to focus on when it comes to marriage and family. The first task of marriage is it forms a community of persons. The marriage forms a community of persons. Now, what does that mean? Well, the first community of persons that it forms are husband and wife together in that two-person community. And that two-person community brings forth from them a larger community of children. So it forms a community of persons. Remember now, guys, we are made for communion because we are made in the image and likeness of God. And God is the community of persons. That's how God exists. He's one, but he's three. He's three, but he's one. He's not only three, he's one, but not only one, but three. Wait, stop, forget it. Don't worry about it. Listen, I can't figure it out. Don't you can't figure it out. Just roll with it. It's true. Right? Jesus says it. I get it. I trust it. It's, it's accurate. So, listen, if Augustine couldn't get it, I'm not going to get it. All right? That's the way I look at it. And Augustine said, famously, if you understand it, it's not God. Thanks, Augustine. Accurate. So, I go with that. But the reality is, in all seriousness, though, the Trinity is a community of persons. So we're made for community. We're also made for complementarity. Men and women, despite what people say today, are different. We just are. In every cell of our being, we're different. Men and women relate differently. Now, this is a shock. Don't be shocked or scandalized. 
It's just the nature of reality. I mean, this is the way it is. And again, parents, we see this. A husband and a wife, a mom and a dad, relate to the kids differently. It's just the nature of reality. That's the truth of things. So the community of persons rests on the spousal nature of the body as well. We're made for community, and in marriage we're made complementarity to bring forth new life through sexual union. That is the beauty of married life. It is the truth of who we are. Complementarity is essential because, again, you know, I've seen it with my, my, my nephew, my brother sister-in-law. I see it in parishioners. We just, men and women, relate differently to the kids, to everything else around us. We interpret reality differently. And it's so important for us to get that. You know, men are not very detail-oriented sometimes with different things. You know, and we don't communicate so well. So I'm thinking to my mom, I'm saying, Mom, you know, yeah, Father so-and-so told me this, but I'm not really sure what he meant. You, know, you didn't ask him? No, I told him, I'm not sure what he meant. You didn't ask him? No, I didn't ask him. Why, why not? I didn't ask him. What's wrong with you? You should ask him the question. So, like, we don't always ask for things. The famous men don't ask for directions. Yeah. Accurate, by the way. So, GPS, thank God, exists. But that's the reality. And the parents exist, the marriage vows are indissoluble, meaning they can't ever be dissolved for any reason whatsoever. Once the vows are said and the marriage is consummated, it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Nothing on earth can break that bond. Only death breaks the bond of marriage. Nothing else can. Marriage is indissoluble because marriage and the parents is a symbol of God's love for us. And God's love is indissoluble. God's love does not ever break apart. It's always there. Marriage is indissoluble because of the good of raising children. The mom and the dad, kids do better. It's just the truth of things. Now, that being said, there are single parents out there who do heroic, extraordinary work. If you ever preach on marriage and the importance of family and through parents, make sure, make sure you mention the exceptional cases of single parents in the congregation, if you can have them, who through death or through divorce because of abuse or whatever, are doing heroic things. Don't make them feel excluded or ostracized. Affirm the ideal, which essentially, absolutely, is mom and dad at home. Do not forget to also affirm those people in the congregation who are doing heroic work to raise their children in the faith. Very, very important to do that as well. It's also indissoluble. This is a lifelong thing. It's forever, in terms of human life being forever, in terms of a certain sense of that. You know, it's it's doesn't break apart this life. Now, a little caveat to that. If a Catholic marries a non-baptized, the marriage is valid. It is not a sacrament. Okay? Why? Because 
in marriage is the only sacrament where the priest or deacon is not the celebrant. The celebrant in a marriage is the couple. The couple confers a sacrament on each other. You can't confirm a, sac for a sacrament if you aren't baptized. You can't confer a sacrament on a non-baptized. It doesn't happen, it doesn't work. The only time that a non-baptized can confer a sacrament is in the exceptional, extraordinary emergency case of baptism. If someone is unbaptized and is dying and wants baptism, all they have is their Jewish friend next to them. The Jewish friend can, in fact, in an emergency, a very extraordinary case, the Jewish friend can, in fact, baptize them. Because so essential is baptism for salvation, mm -hmm. we allow that to be the case with a non-baptized person baptizing somebody. All right. Again, exceptions don't make the rule just the way that it is in terms of um, these situations. Okay. Next task of marriage is serving life. Serving life. So there's two components to it. This component is transmission of life, having children. That's the first component of it. Pretty simple. Second is the education and raising of those children. We speak here about the importance of the primary role of parents as the educators of their children. In the rite of baptism, the rite clearly says, you will be the first teachers of the way of the faith. You will also be the best of teachers. It is incumbent upon parents, it is essential to parents, to raise their children with the education and the faith that is essential to their growing up with the truth, what we believe, or we hold to. Really, really important. We have a sense of, of all of that. All right. Now, the school system is important. They help out. But first and foremost, it's what is taught at home in the faith that is central. All right. Number three, third task of marriage. Participate in the building up of society. Participate in the building up of society. The family comes before civil society. The government, the law, and the courts. The family comes before all of those things. The law does not confer or create a family or confer rights to the family. The government does and recognize the rights a family already has. The government cannot create a family, cannot create rights. When it does so, it has overstepped its bounds. And there should be a symbiosis between the state and the family. When children are raised well in a family with values and with good sense of morals, they're not going to become criminals. They're not going to become a blight 
on society in terms of doing terrible things or getting in trouble or causing all kinds of other issues. So when children are raised well in the family, it benefits the state. So it behooves the state to support the family because the two work hand in hand. Good two-parent families supported by the state are able to then be able to have good children who become good citizens. So it works in both ways. And when governments and states don't support the family, that state is headed for extinction and every historical circumstance bears that out. Whenever a culture collapsed, whether it be Rome, ancient Greece, whatever the case may be, it was always because the morality of the society collapsed around it as well. In Rome, before the empire collapsed, they were paying families to have children because so many families weren't having kids. And they realized the challenge that brought upon the state. Recently, in this country, in some areas in the U.S., they're paying families. Actually, no, not here, sorry. It's in Europe, sorry. It's in Italy. In Italy, they're paying... Wrong wires crossed. Late night, sorry. They're paying families to have children. Because European demographics are horrendous. And you can't support a welfare state without having people to pay for the benefits and social security issues that are there. It's a major, major problem. So, that's made very important. All right, now, also important when it comes to building up society is the role that dads play. Fathers are essential, essential, essential. It is, they are so critical. Now, here's the thing. There was a study done in Europe in the early 2000s, over the course of about, about 10 years, in terms of church attendance. Here, here, here are the statistics here. If both parents go to mass regularly, 33% of their children will end up as adults, as regular churchgoers. 41% will attend here and there. Only a quarter of them will stop ending their practice of the faith. Right? Not great, but not necessarily either. If the father goes to church, I'm sorry, father is irregular going to church, go here and there, whatever, and mom goes faithfully. Dad here and there, mom faithfully. Ready for this? Only 3% of the children will end up as, as mass goers in their adulthood. 59% will become irregulars. 38% will be lost. Peter. What date was this survey? You know, it was done uh, 2012, I believe, when it was uh, finished. Over the course of about 10 years, it was done in Europe. That's it. Just that's just Europe, or that it was studied done, I believe, in Switzerland. Done in, in parts of Europe. Yeah. Okay, I, I would think this country is a lot different. I mean, I'm just based on I'm I'm president of my holy name and and the Staten Island holy name, and mm-hmm. a lot of my members are older men. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the probably average age is seventy, if not above, and a lot of their children don't go to church. Right. And both them and their, their wives and their, their both parents went to church religiously. And it's like pulling teeth trying to get my members 
to try to get their children, who are now adults, to go to church. Right. I even have, I was also in charge of a youth group. They get people who were altar servants and then members of the youth group to go to church. is very difficult. Well, Dr. Peters, I remember, though, even the numbers here, even in a good parent situation, almost 70% of the kids will become, at best, irregular churchgoers. So I would say that it's not a great number. The point of this is that when dad is not involved at all, it makes it even even more of an issue. But you're not you're not wrong. I mean, I know many parents where both go to church and the kids are, you know, not going to mass either. I get it. And that's not uncommon, unfortunately. But I think that the point of this kind of little survey here that I'm kind of quoting tonight is that when dads aren't involved at all, the numbers are like horrendous. They're really bad. So fair point. I get what you're saying. But I think that it's even worse with uh, with that. So one little other point here, finishing it up. If the father is not practicing the faith at all, and the mom is regular about faith, only 2% of the children become regular churchgoers. So the point of this is how essential fathers are, how essential dads are for the good of the family of building up the family when it comes to those issues, when it comes to um, raising children, which really is essential for us to understand how important um, both parents are. You know, the reality is kids will play off the parents on one another. So if mom goes and dad doesn't, or vice versa for that matter, the kids are going to say to mom or dad, why is it they can stay home, but I have to go to church? It's the same thing where anytime parents are divided on an issue that's important, the kids are going to make it into a wedge. Kids aren't stupid. And they're going to do, they're going to do that. How, how can they operate? Part of, part of nature, right? It's not a, bad, not a bad thing in some sense, I guess, whatever. But the reality is, kids are going to use that. But if it's a united front, that's how, that's how it goes. And listen... Everybody at some point usually goes through a stage in their life when going to church is like pulling teeth or it's like, I don't want to do this, it's boring, whatever. All right. I think, though, for parents, as long as the kids are under your roof every Sunday, this is what we do, get up, let's go. You go to college, that's your, your own person at that point. This is our life. We do it this way. And you know what? The reality is when people do come to marriage, preparation, church, baptizing their kids, it's because the foundation was laid earlier in their life. It's because mom and dad supported the church and taught them the values of the church. When there is no faith life at all, it doesn't work. It becomes like trying to make it, it's, it's impossible. To it's really important that we have a sense of um, the importance of, of both parents um, being on board here, being supportive of it. Because again, Kids pick up from the parents what's important. If faith is important, there's a good chance the kids will pick that up. Now, again, our culture today is so secular that it becomes very difficult, much harder than probably ever before. I have friends of mine up in um, Upper Counties in Monroe, New York. My first parish was up there. And their school just closed, an old school closed that we had here in New York. And, um, the parents said, you know, we can't put our kids 
in the nearest Catholic school. We can't it's go into the commute. But we can't, in good conscience, put our kids in a public school because for eight hours a day, we're going to be bombarded with all this other stuff we think it was, that we were opposed to. Let's face it, eight hours a day, five days a week, for this was out of the year. What chance do parents have? The kids are being bombarded with this. Even to the point now of teachers, some of them on via Zoom, recently were upset because they were afraid the kids, parents were going to hear some of the things taught in school to indoctrinate their children in crazy other teachings. It's wild. And there was a time when the kind of craziness that is taught on college campuses was on college campuses. Now, it's everywhere. And it begins in kindergarten, even before. I forget which state it is. One of the states passed, out of California, recently passed um, a law or, or a thing with, with, where children will be taught the beginning of sex ed um, in like kindergarten. Or like at three, like five or six years old. What kind of madness is this? Right? Their values are not our values. And when they say, well, don't worry, it's valueless. You don't put a value on right or wrong here. That itself is a value statement. If you say, we're not going to have values involved in this year, that's saying there are no values. There is nothing is truly valueless. It doesn't exist that way. If you have it or you don't, and the reality is they don't. And these kids from a young age now are being bombarded with this. And it makes our job as men of faith, as clergy members, please God, one day for you guys too, to have to deal with this. And it's not easy. Not easy at all. But it's part of who we have to be. We are always the voice crying in the wilderness. We have survived much worse than this. We'll survive this too. But going through it ain't easy. But the good news, though, gents, is the church is always raised up its greatest saints in moments of difficulty, moments of trial, and moments of challenge. So we're here as the remnant to, you know, uh, be there in the presence of all of this difficult time. All right. The fourth task of marriage, the life and mission of the church. The life and mission of the church. Vatican II calls the family the domestic church. In the future of society and the church passed by way of the family. The family is a mess. Society too is going to be a mess. It's just the nature of what we see happening all around us. John Paul II would say, as the family goes, so goes the nation. And he's right. Intact families that pray together, have meals together, what a shock that would be, right? And actually spend time together, always do better. It's just, it just, it means a hard, it's an iron law. It doesn't ever, um, nothing so far at least, proves differently. You know, families praying together, essential. You know, do families spend time to pray together? As a kid growing up, we had in our house, we had an advent wreath. Every advent, all four weeks, it was 
we prayed the Advent prayers every night and the rosary, part of that. Reading, you know, Jesus of the Cross, you know, all these things are essential. And the church gives us liturgical seasons of the year to highlight when these things become important, when we can do these things. So really important for us, gents, to be focused on the beauty and importance of the nature of the family. And we see today how it is put down, how it is mocked. There's new models of family that are out there. It's, it's a battle. There's no question about it. But um, it's a battle worth, worth fighting for sure. All right, before going on to the next topic, we're going to kind of think call it quits tonight. We're two and a half hours almost. I'm exhausted. Hopefully you are too. Don't listen to two hours here. God bless you guys doing this. Bang it in there. This is not the ideal. I admit, this is not the ideal. But um, what makes this work, gents, is what happened tonight. Questions, comments from you guys. Otherwise, it's going to bore you and bore me to death. So please, please don't be afraid to raise an issue ask a question, challenge a point that I made. That's another thing. If you challenge a point that I made, I'm going to hold it against you. I get it. You're all thinking candidates. You're worried. If I say to Father, I don't know about this, you're going to say, well, Deacon Bello, one of your guys, it's to me. But no, don't worry about it. It's okay. I have a question. Make it a good one now. Come on. No, he's a guy. Sure. Okay. Um, uh, about it, it, impediments. Uh, suppose a couple comes into your office and before marriage that we want to get married but the my my husband to be has been evaluated and he can have children he has a an anatomic uh, problem that prohibits him from having children can we get married in the catholic church so the anatomic problem will be um impotence, impotence. of not being able to, to it would be, perform marriage. it would be it would be uh uh Canonical impotence. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the marriage has to be consummated. So if the husband is unable to perform the marital act in any kind of capacity, that makes it a big problem. Now, can, again, be, can the bishop to, uh, give him a dispensation? No. No. Yeah. What I think you could do, though, and I have done this, but some, it's not with this real issue, but I have referred people, medical professionals, might be able to help the husband in some capacity to be able to, to perform the marital act. But you have to be able to consummate the marriage. If you can't consummate the marriage, the marriage can't be can't be confected, unfortunately. That can be an issue now with you know uh, veterans coming back from war. Paralyzed. I mean, I can't even imagine the, the trauma of that in general. Never mind when it comes to marriage. But it is, um, yeah. Yeah, John. Sorry, you're saying something. Unless the penis is absent, almost always you can uh, rig something up to, to cause intromission. Yeah, and as long as in it, and as long as that can happen, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> All right. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know the exact uh, medical way that would happen. But I mean, if it can, if it can happen, thank God, good. So at least the couple can be able to have the marriage, you know, blessed by the church and be validated by the church. Mm -hmm. And if they can't, 
Can they, can they get married uh, civilly and, and, and live yeah, without being in sin or? Yeah, because the only issue with, with living in sin would be that you're having sex without there being a marriage covenant there. Right. But right, I suppose right. that they could marry, marry civilly without any kind of marital relations with the benefits that marriage can give you civilly, you know, with those <coughs> in, in the mm-hmm. little benefits. Right, 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 right. Okay. So, so if, if a couple approaches us and one's in a wheelchair, mm-hmm. say the husband's in a wheel, future husband yeah. should be in a wheelchair, we're supposed to approach that question whether or not he can perform? No, I would not ask that question of them. I wouldn't. I think it's a good, well, yeah, here's the thing. That's, that's a good point, Pete. Thank you for raising that because it is an issue. Um, on Before marriage is, is celebrated, there is the PMI, the premarital investigation that is done. And one of the questions asked is, is there any physical defect that will prevent you from having marital relations? So that question is asked as part of the premarital uh, questionnaire that every couple has to answer to before they get married. So the question is, in fact, asked, but it's asked in a formal way. I would not myself, say, by the way, I noticed this. Can you do it? You know, I would just, you know, I would. But what I, what I might do, though, is very early on, maybe even in the second meeting with them, uh, do the PMI. Normally, in the third meeting, I do the PMI. I would do it earlier just to see before it gets too far along here um, what the case may be. Thank God I never had, in all my other priesthood, never had any issue like that. But it is possible. But as John is saying, there could be some way of, even some medical way, perhaps, of, like a better word, breaking something up to be able to have there be some kind of uh, penetration or consummation to be able to happen for the wedding, for the marriage. And related question. Suppose that they get married, they're fine. I mean, they can, they're completely healthy. Right. There's a car accident. And now, because of the car accident, the husband can't perform. Right. Uh, the church standing would be against the wife having artificial assimilation and... Correct. We'll get to that later on in the semester, but yeah, right. Right. So the, what would happen now to this marriage if they can't have children? Well, remember, the marriage, the vows make the marriage. So what was done, what was promised on the wedding day, um, in good faith and with all intention of having kids and having a family, that holds. So even though a future event made it impossible, the vows they were confected when they were, when they were exchanged, were exchanged to be able to have children, have a family. A later event, uh, unfortunately, is what uh, made it impossible. That's why, by the way, a later event in a marriage does not render the marriage um, invalid. In the opposite, let's say, for example, a couple is married and he is unfaithful to her, and she wants a divorce. The unfaithfulness itself is not a reason for an annulment. Because if if it shows that he was promised fidelity on that wedding day, and he meant it, the later act of unfaithfulness does not undo the promise made on the day of the marriage. Or, this is even more possible, let's say that the husband develops a drug problem. A drinking problem in the marriage and it becomes a point of being unbearable now Jimmy has to get out for her own safety and the kids safety it's not impossible it's very possible but the marriage won't be annulled on that principle because the addiction happened later after the vows were exchanged validly 
with every good faith and good intention. When annulment happens, an annulment has to prove at the time of the vows, there was something lacking that made the vows invalid. So if he was impotent, no, he was impotent before they got married, that would be grounds for annulment. Yeah, sure. Yeah, same thing where a couple, let's say a couple, um, one of the spouses says this has happened. One of the spouses has no intention of having children, ever. And they promise to have the wedding day, and then once the couple gets married, one of them says, by the way, I don't want kids, not going to happen, forget it. That is grounds for annulment. Because that's the person who promised something at the time of the vows and holding something back. The point you read about, but impotence, Peter, say it again, and you were exactly about that being annulment, the, the impotence factor, say it again. What was that question you asked? Well, I was saying that suppose if when they got married mm -hmm. and they both said, yeah, they want kids, but then they're trying and she can't get pregnant, and then they do testing, they find out that he's not capable of having kids. You know, whether well, it's the impotent factor. Is that he simply can't that his sperm is not non mobile or whatever the case is in those situations where he's you know he's the he can't have children. Um, the 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 issue is that the marital act is still being performed with every good intention of having children. So just because he can't be able to have kids from his point, his um, sperm is not not uh, able to do that. That itself is not. Impotence really means that the person cannot maintain an erection. That's what it means. It can't can have or maintain an erection. That's what it means. So, but impotence itself is not that you can't have children. You can marry a couple where he can perform, but he can't. But he's but he's impotent. But he can't have. He can't have children. I thought canonical impotence was the inability to have intercourse, to right. have intromission, right. penetration. Right. But they can, if you can not get an erection, that's not the same as canonical impotence. As, yeah, I mean, this is getting into real technical, yeah, I mean, you're right, in some sense. And you could... Technically speaking. Right, you know, you're right, you're right. You're right, I'm trying, yeah. Yeah, it's late, and this is kind of heavy stuff for 930 night, but... Yeah. Um, no, it's true. But as long as a couple can, in some way, shape, or form, be able to have consummation of the marriage... That itself would be um, would be valid in terms of marriage to be consummated. Right. Whew. All right. Any any other questions? Well, or lots, lots lots more, but we'll leave them for another day. Yeah, funny. Listen, listen again. This is not going to work without questions being asked and conversation happening to avoid uh, guys passing out from. Um, you know, late night fatigue. boredom or something, fatigue, yeah. Like, this is good. So I, I welcome the discussion. Whatever I have, I have to say, I can say without there being any kind of like, I'll, I'll get the over here, don't worry. It's more important for us to have these discussions because frankly, guys, this is practical stuff. You're going to face this. You know, I'm a professor, but I'm also a parish priest. That's what I am. So I'm always going to approach this from a parish priest standpoint. 
So um, you got um, this class. So guys, it was it was good tonight. I enjoyed our conversation very much. And uh, next week, I'm gonna ask you to read two documents. First one, you can get them online. First one is called Persona, P-E-R-S-O-N-A. Persona Humana, H-U-M-A-N-A, Persona Humana. And the second one, find it here, I have it in my little folder, hold on. <sighs> second one is from the USCCB. And it is document titled Ministry to Persons with Homosexual Inclination. All right. That's the USCCB. Both get them online. Uh, Personal amount is about 10 pages. This is about 25 pages. It's not too cumbersome. And we should. If not, that's okay too. Get into aberrations of um, sexuality, marriage, next class, which would be some of these issues I've talked about, and get into some of the um, real complicated pastoral issues that are facing us um, in these uh, difficult and challenging times and challenging situations. Any questions or comments, email me. You can call me. My cell phone number is on the uh, Populi website. Please feel free to do that. If anything is unclear, any question kind of clarified, let me know. All right. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, beginning is, is now, now, and ever shall, shall be, be world without, without end. end. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. God bless. Good night. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night. Have a good night, everybody. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.